0: Well, as you, as you uh, gathered, I'm sure, from that prayer, we are getting ready to kick off a brand new sermon series here at Trinity that will carry us from now through most of the summer, to very near the end of the summer, a series through uh, a, a passage of Scripture that's become known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a passage that occurs in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the earliest stories about who Jesus was and what He did and what kinds of things He taught, and this sermon is Represents probably the largest extended section of teaching that we get straight from Jesus Himself. It's almost like someone was there taking notes. Almost like it, this isn't what happened, by the way, but it's almost like one of those guys who or, or or gals who sits next to the judge at a trial and they take, they have a little weird little machine with the small slips of paper and they're they're taking, I guess it's in shorthand, they're taking dictating everything that's said during a trial. It's almost like somebody was there on this mountain with Jesus, taking down in shorthand what he was saying, getting ready for all of us who 2,000 years ago were going to need to know what he said. Now, one of the things that I'll go ahead and tell you up front is that you're probably probably going to be somewhat, at least, familiar with what gets said in this sermon. And that holds true for you even if you're not a Christian. Even if you're here this morning uh, without much knowledge of what the Bible teaches or about who Jesus was or what he was about... um, this is a sermon that'll probably resonate a little bit with something you've heard in your past. So, for example, it's got tons of familiar quotes. For example, uh, this is uh, this is the sermon behind that, that gives us the, the beatitudes. These memorable, pithy, poetic statements that that Jesus starts the sermon with. Statements like, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." "Blessed are the merciful." For they shall receive mercy. Sound familiar? That's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the passage that gives us the Lord's Prayer. One of the versions of it. Faithful Christians for all time, all over the world. And football players in locker rooms all over the Southeast. Have been reciting this Lord's Prayer since Jesus gave it to us. It's a beautiful prayer. One that we're going to unpack at length. It should be pretty familiar to you. It's a passage that includes the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's the passage that includes everybody's favorite Bible verse. And no, I'm not talking about John 3.16. Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged. The theme verse for the modern West, if ever there was one. It's a passage that's familiar to us, but I'm afraid it's not a passage that's, that's very well understood by us. Here's what... One pastor wrote about the Sermon on the Mount in a in a, in a guide to that sermon that i 'm going to recommend that you guys get i 've got a uh, this is uh, just pause right here and, and make a first of several pitches for resources that are going to be helpful to you as we unpack the Sermon on the Mount together in the next few months. This one is a, a book called "The Message of the Sermon on the Mount" by one of my favorite pastors, John Stott He pastored in England in the twentieth century he 's dead now uh, but had a long and faithful ministry in London. Uh, and, and did a lot of writing as well. This is a, a really accessible, brief overview of the Sermon on the Mount. It'd be great to get a copy of this and just read the texts that we're going to be talking about on a Sunday. Just read the passages of this book that correspond to what we're going to be talking about. It'd be very helpful for you. Here's what he says, though, about the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's true. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. Probably the best known, arguably the least understood, and certainly the least obeyed. What we want to do this morning, as we take a bird's eye view over everything we're going to look at together in the next seven months or so, what we want to do this morning is set ourselves up to understand the sermon and to look ahead to how we might go about obeying the sermon. Two simple questions. What's the sermon about? Not my sermon, Jesus' sermon, Sermon on the Mount. What's the sermon about? And how can we put the sermon to good use? What's the sermon about? How can we put the sermon to good use? There's our path for today. we am going to spend most of our time on that first question And I want to begin by reading the backdrop to the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we'd love to give you one. We've got Bibles uh, at the end of each aisle and on the center of each aisle. Flag somebody down who's sitting over there. They pass one to you. We'd love you to have it. Take it with you. It's your copy. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter chapter 4, the end of chapter 4 and the very beginning of chapter 5 to set up our look at chapters 5 to 7 which are the Sermon on the Mount. Now I'm going to ask you, if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's Word while I read. This is the Word of the Lord from the Gospel of Matthew. And He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, and healing every disease, and every affliction among the people. So His fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought Him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. You can be seated. What's this sermon about? That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And I think we've got to start there because uh, the familiar title of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't really tell us anything. Except where he sat when he delivered his sermon. Be like saying this sermon is the sermon on the stage or the sermon on the podcast. It doesn't really tell you about anything about what's in it. It's a nice vivid descriptor, you know, it evokes all these images in your mind about Jesus seated up on a hill, maybe his voice projecting out over the hill as it goes down, maybe he's surrounded by other these small rolling hills that you've seen in in what we now know as the Holy Land. It's a pretty image, but it doesn't tell us anything about what's in there. What's the sermon about? This sermon that was delivered on the mountain. We've got to look for other clues to see what it's about. We've got to look for other clues, particularly, to see why Matthew, who was writing this big, long story about Jesus, would have wanted to plug this teaching into his story at this point. What role does this teaching section have? Chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's 28-chapter story what role does this teaching section play in the whole story? Fortunately, Christmas wasn't that long ago and you probably spent some time reading in the early chapters of Matthew where we're told that Jesus is one who's descended from David. There's a clue. He's a king. He's the one that the prophet said would come like David only to reign forever. We were told that the The wise men came from afar following a star looking for this king so that they could worship him too. Oh, this is a king who's going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, not just to people from the people of Israel. We were given quotes in Matthew 4 of prophets that talked of one who would come from the way of the sea beyond the Jordan to a people dwelling in darkness that those people might see a great light that those people who were dwelling in the region and shadow of death would have a light dawn on them. That's something that we were told. And then we're told Jesus opens his mouth and starts teaching. The backdrop are promises of a coming king. Promises of a coming king who would bring in a coming kingdom that had been promised centuries before in Israel's prophets. That guy is here. And then we see Jesus going throughout all Galilee, in the passage we read, Matthew 4, beginning in verse 23, teaching in the synagogues, and what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. All that language about a king who is coming, now Jesus is applying it to himself and to what he has come to do. And that raises for us a question. If Jesus was going around everywhere talking about the gospel of the kingdom, what was he actually saying about it? What is the gospel of the kingdom? That's why Matthew plugs this passage in at this point in his story. He wants you to know what Jesus was saying when all these crowds were flocking to him. What was Jesus teaching about the kingdom? So what is this sermon about? I want to unpack that phrase from Matthew. That Jesus was going about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. I want to unpack that phrase to introduce you at a bird's eye level to what the whole sermon is about. It's a sermon that's about the kingdom, and it's a sermon that's about the gospel. Those are our two uh, poles, if you will, that we're going to use to get get our bearings here under this question about what's the sermon about. It's about the kingdom, and it's about the gospel. So, the kingdom is where Jesus begins. It's what Matthew says Jesus has been talking about. When he opens his mouth... To teach his disciples who gathered around him, the first thing he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First thing out of his mouth is a description of who belongs in the kingdom. Of who the kingdom belongs to. Then if you flip ahead near the end of the, cha- of, of the sermon, flip ahead to chapter 7, one of the last pieces of teaching that Jesus gives as he's winding down, we're back on the kingdom again. Chapter 7 says, chapter 7 verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, who professes allegiance to the king will enter the kingdom of heaven. Starts the sermon talking about who is in the kingdom. Ends the sermon talking about a warning who's not in the kingdom. But from beginning to end, what he's talking about is the kingdom. The kingdom. What he's talking about is where the kingdom shows up. What it looks like to live in and for his kingdom. Think about it this way. The subject of his sermon is what is answering a question. What will followers of Jesus who belong to this kingdom be known for? What will they be known for? People get themselves an identity, don't they? When I was in grad school, one of the things that I studied most was national identity. How nations build for themselves a sense of themselves. And then try to communicate that to other people. Try to set themselves off from other nations. It's different to be an American from a Canadian, right? I'm going to let you guys go ahead and fill in what those differences are. I wouldn't pretend to fill that in for you. But it's different. It's different to be an American than it is to be an Englishman or a Frenchman. We all have... We all have stereotypes in our minds that help us to group people together and, 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 and label them. As a Southerner, I'm more than familiar with these stereotypes. It won't surprise you to know, as a Southerner, that I have an affinity for smoked meat, that I occasionally draw when it suits my purposes, that I avoid direct speech at all costs, under all circumstances. They're also surprising when people don't fit the type, right? It might surprise you to know that I don't own a firearm besides my Red Rider BB gun. I do enjoy eating deer meat, never have killed one. And I've never owned a truck in my life. <laughs> the reason those things show up, the reasons they, they catch your attention is because they don't fit the type, right? They either do or don't fit the type. All of us create identities that are corporate, This sermon is a sermon about the kind of corporate identity, about the reputation or the stereotype that should attach to people who are with Jesus. What his kingdom is like. The other thing about stereotypes is that they often set you off, set you apart from other groups, whether they're wrong or right. They're they're meant for making contrasts and distinctions. And that's something you're going to see a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saying, the kingdom belongs to these, not these. You should be like this. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. A lot of times what he's doing is charting this path between pagans on the one hand. Who, who don't honor, the, uh, who, aren't, who aren't terribly religious in the ways of, of the people of Israel. They don't think about things the way that the Jews had. And then, and then also saying, don't be like these people over here who are super religious. But only on the outside. Who, who, whose religion is a means to making themselves feel better, look better in the eyes of other people? He's charting this path in between. It don't be like them. Don't be like them. Be like this. He's trying to show us where the kingdom shows up. What? How? How the kingdom is different from other ways to be. I hope that makes sense. Let me point you to a couple examples. It's a counterculture that Jesus is trying to describe here. He starts with the character of kingdom citizens in chapter 5. So the next two months, basically, we're going to go real, real slow through this section known as the Beatitudes. The blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. Those who get a bad rap. For standing out. All, all, all we're seeing here is that this certain character internally defines people who are in the kingdom. But then, then from that place in chapter 5, he moves outward. And he says, those people who are marked by this kind of character, they're going to be salt and light in the world. That's the next passage in chapter 5. He says, you're going to be salt. Salt that preserves, that flavors, that brings good taste into the outside world. World. Those who are not of the kingdom will be helped and benefited by those who are. You'll be a light that can be seen in the middle of darkness. You see how that, that stands out from what's normal. It's a counterculture that has an influence, a positive influence on the cultures around it. Then he talks about all the different ways that you should be different. He talks about anger in chapter 5 about how anger and mur- how, how you've, you've heard that you're not supposed to murder, but I'm telling you, if you're even angry in your heart against your brother, you may as well have committed murder. So people who are in the kingdom, they're different. They respond to other people's flaws differently. Then he talks about adultery. You've heard you shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, you shouldn't even lust after a woman. If you do that, you may as well have committed adultery in your heart. You look at other people's bodies differently if you're in the kingdom. Then he moves on to a passage about enemies, about how you've heard that you're supposed to love your neighbor, but I'm telling you, your neighbor's not the people that you like. It's not just your brothers and your sisters. Your neighbor is your enemy. I tell you, you, you should even love your enemies. What good is it? if you, How are you different from anybody else if you love the people who love you? That's what he says at the end of chapter 5. So people in the kingdom have a different posture for, towards their enemies than people who aren't in the kingdom. Chapter 6 just keeps on going with this catalog of differences. People who are in the kingdom spend their money differently for those who are in need. They save their money differently. They don't treasure up things here on earth as if they weren't just going to get eaten up by moths and by rust. As if they wouldn't just be stolen away either by, by some thief or by death itself. They don't save money the same way that people outside the kingdom save money. They don't look to the future in the same way. talks about worry and anxiety and how those who are in the kingdom trust that their father's got them, that he clothed the lilies of the field and he takes care of the birds who don't do anything to save up food for themselves. He just, they just trust they're going to have what they need and he gives it to them. So how much more would your father pr- provide for you? Those who are in the kingdom don't worry about the future in the same way that others do. I hope those examples make the point. What's the sermon about? It's about the kingdom. It's about where the kingdom shows up. It's about the kind of identity that sets people in this kingdom off from other kingdoms. It's a kingdom in which righteousness always shows up. The sermon a helpful reminder that we ought not expect to fit in. We ought not expect to fit in if, you're, if we're with Jesus. And it's a, it's a guide for us into the ways we ought to expect to stand out. But before we move on, so, so I've said, what's the sermon about? Two poles for us, kingdom and gospel, from Matthew's summary. Before we move to gospel, I want to make sure you notice something that's going to be really important for connecting with the message about the kingdom Jesus is going to be communicating to us. Something really important, you can't miss it. We talk a lot about how the, this sermon is where is is calling us as people in the kingdom to stand out, to be different, to have a visible difference. But there's another strong theme in what Jesus says about the kingdom that, that we've got to have in our minds to hold in check something we might do with this call to stand out, something that can't be done if we're to represent Christ well. Here's a tension here. Yes, the kingdom always shows up on the outside. That's true. But though it always shows up on the outside, it's always rooted on the inside. Jesus' followers will have a righteousness that stands out, that looks different, that's noticeable. But Jesus' followers are never righteous just because they want to stand out. So, for example, look at verse, look at chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, he continues, sound no trumpet before you. Wow, oh, that's a convicting image, isn't it? When I think about what percentage of the, of the quote-unquote good things I do in a given week do I only do if somebody's around to hear me blow my trumpet? When you pray, he says, in verse 5, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues where everybody's listening, where they can sound all churchy. And people are impressed by it. Oh, that guy, he gets it. I say to you, they've received their reward, Jesus says. But when you pray, if you're in the kingdom, when you pray, you go in your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, Don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. That's verse 16. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Oh, it's so hard. I'm so hungry. Thank goodness I'm so righteous. I say to you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, make sure you're looking good when you go out. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. What are we talking about here? The sermon's about the kingdom, right? There's your big picture. But this is a king, and this is a kingdom that shows up on the outside. It should be different. People should be able to look at you and tell you're with the kingdom. You shouldn't just blend in. But if you are with the kingdom, you will never look different in order to look different. You will always look different because you are authentically genuinely captivated by love for the God who made you, for the God who's come to save you in Jesus. In the kingdom, all religiosity is authentic. That's where that warning came in in chapter 7. I read it a minute ago. That's where Jesus is winding up the sermon, and he's saying this, this kind of people, they, they do not, the kingdom does not belong here. Here's what he says. This is in chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh Uh-oh. You mean just because I say I'm with Jesus doesn't necessarily mean I am with Jesus? On that day, speaking of the day of judgment, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? The kingdom, it stood out in us. People heard us prophesy. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do things that displayed spiritual power? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? The kingdom is about standing out. We stood out. Jesus says, not everybody who says, Lord, or who even does seemingly powerful things Will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is those who do what they do because it pleases God, because they love the one who made them and came for them. It is those whose righteousness stands out because it's rooted where no one can see it who will enter the kingdom of heaven. I recently read a, a really captivating book. It won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago by a guy named Adam Johnson called The Orphan Master's Son. It's set in North Korea, having never been there or read much of anything nonfiction about it. I can't speak to whether it reflects that society, Um, but it was not a pretty picture. It was a, a novel about what it's like to live under the microscope of a state with absolute power, who can do with you what it will, and who always sees everything follows the course of, of a couple major characters who who are trying to navigate life and find some sort of meaning and freedom in the midst of it, of this totalitarian regime. But one of the things that I, that I really know, stood out to me about the book, about the story, less to do with the plot, I'm not going to spoil it for you, you can read it yourself sometime if you want to, but one of the things that I just noticed about the way of life it described, whether it's true of North Korea or not, uh, is is that you had a lot of people whose... Kingdom identity, whose identity with the way of life of the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, something like that, showed up. But over the course of the story, you could see that it was coming from some very dubious places. What showed up was rooted in some very dubious places. So everybody was professing love for their dear leader. That's what they call the ruler of North Korea, the dear leader. (laughs) Everybody was professing love for North Korea as the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Everybody was sort of sympathetic for all those poor people who lived in South Korea or Japan or America. Those were the countries they didn't like. They thought that they were just you know, dominated by poverty and, and by uh, you know, repressive governments. Not us, not here in the, De- in, in the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. But there were different ways of showing this kind of affection. For their government. Some people were just saying it out of fear. They would talk about and praise their dear leader because they knew that the people around them might turn on them and report them for sedition if they didn't. They didn't love their dear leader, they didn't love where they lived or what they lived like. They just knew that they had to put on, or else they might get punished. Others really did buy in. They really did love the dear leader and love living in North Korea. And they were really always on the lookout for people who they could turn in. For people that they, could, that they could bring to the government as those who didn't have the affection necessary for people who want to thrive in this government, in this, in this society. Their outward display, their kingdom identity was rooted in self-righteousness. And condescension towards others. And a desire to find people who don't fit the mold and get them out. Two ways that kingdom showed up. Rooted in fear. Rooted in pride. Both of them ugly. Both of them have no place in the kingdom Jesus is describing here. This is a kingdom that shows up but not among people who are too afraid to be different not among people who think they've got it all figured out and and look down on all those who don't. This is not the kind of righteousness you can ever fake. So if you're considering Christianity this morning, it, it could be that maybe one of the things that's held you back from becoming a Christian before now is that you feel like the church is full of phonies. And you know what? And a lot of times, yeah, has been. A lot of times I've been phony. We're right to want more than hypocrisy. We are right to want, to crave authenticity. But but friends, being authentic doesn't mean blending in with everyone else around us. Authenticity doesn't look like just, just going with the flow. Dressing and watching and interacting and wanting and buying just like everybody else does. Authenticity doesn't mean blending in with those who aren't Christians. It means being so committed to the rule of Jesus that we live for Him and in relationship with Him even when nobody's watching. This kingdom Jesus has come to bring, it's rooted on the inside even though it shows up on the outside. And what we're going to do together as we walk step by step through this sermon is try to figure out what is it that shows up on the outside and what does it look like to have a heart that produces those things naturally. The sermon's about the kingdom. We need to pump the brakes here for a second though. It's not just about the kingdom. Matthew described what Jesus was preaching as the gospel of the kingdom. So sermon's about a way of life that will be true for people who are with Jesus. But but he's called it gospel. Good news. There's something about this picture that we've just barely even scratched the surface on here. That's, that's beautiful. That draws us in. I remember when I was a kid... Uh, I don't know if they still sell these things. I haven't seen one in a long time. But I remember my grandparents used to have one of these lights that you'd hang up on your porch. Maybe this is a southern thing, I don't know. One of these lights. It's a kind of a blue light. And it's always got this buzz to it. And it draws moths into it. And then zzz, it zaps them, kills them. Anybody else? Show of hands, just real quick. Anybody else seen one of these lights? Well, most of you have seen these. I think of the Sermon on the Mount as a lot like one of those lights. Because there's something about its picture of a way of being, a way of living, that's beautiful. It's drawn in lots of people who aren't Christians, who really haven't had anything for the rest of the stuff that's in the Bible. Talk of death and sacrifice and blood and, 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 and the need for you know, taking up one's cross. People who would reject a lot of that uber-religious language really like what Jesus has to say here. Who doesn't like the idea of a society where people respond to a request for spare change by taking you over to the ATM and pulling out a stack of 20s? That's the image Jesus gives us. If someone asks you for your shirt, give them your cloak too. Don't hold your shirt back. Give them everything. Who doesn't like the idea of a society where people who respond to an insult not by punching somebody out or pulling a knife or pulling a gun always escalating? in would-be self-defense, but respond by turning the other cheek and loving those who are their enemies. Who wouldn't want to live in a place like that? Gandhi is said to have meditated on the Sermon on the Mount even daily in some stretches as, as a window into the kind of world he was for, a world where nonviolence reigns and people love one another. John Adams, nobody's, uh, nobody's uh, image or example of a, of a f- faithful week-in, week-out Christian wrote to Thomas Jefferson famously that the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain my religion. There's a rule follower for you right there. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it, that he helped to lead a anti-government uprising? I digress. <laughs> People like the Sermon on the Mount even when they're not really into the rest of the package. So we're drawn to it. There's something beautiful. We're drawn to it like a moth into one of these beautiful blue lights. But you get too close to the Sermon on the Mount and you're going to get burned. You're going to get zapped. Because the Sermon on the Mount includes things like like this from chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It says this about lust. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's a sermon that concludes in chapter 5 with this statement. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's your application from the Sermon on the Mount? Why don't you guys just go on and be perfect? How about that? Just be perfect. I don't know about you, but that doesn't initially sound to me like gospel. That sounds to me like like guilt, almost. Where's the good news here? When I know that this image is one that doesn't look a whole lot like me. Friends, here's the thing you got to recognize. You got to recognize that where Jesus, who Jesus is talking to here, are his disciples. The very beginning of, the, uh, of chapter five, what we read was that he saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain and he addressed his disciples. His disciples came to him, those who were already called out by his grace, those who had already had him put his seal on them, who had already been brought in by his love and his affection. He's talking to those who are already part of this kingdom. What we're going to unpack together in the Sermon on the Mount is not a standard for gaining admission to the kingdom. It's not what you've got to do to get in. It's what will be true of all those who are in. Don't miss this, friends, or the Sermon on the Mount will just depress you if you take it seriously enough to realize you aren't the rock star you think you are. The Sermon on the Mount will depress you week in and week out unless you realize he's not giving you a test for entrance into the kingdom. He is describing a promise of what will be true in the lives of everyone who is in the kingdom. He's talking to his disciples. When he said that you've got to be perfect as, his, as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus meant that. He wasn't just trying to get us depressed so that we look to him in faith. It's more than that. He meant it. He wants us to live like the Sermon on the Mount describes. But he's not saying you ought to try to be perfect. He's saying you must be perfect. There is no place for you in the kingdom short of your perfection. And not one of you can do this by yourself. But not one of you can't do this by grace. You must look like the Sermon on the Mount describes. Not one of you can do it by yourself. But the gospel, friends, is that there isn't one of you who can't do it by Jesus' power through His grace. What we're going to unpack together as we go through this sermon is a picture of what you will be guaranteed if you're with Him. Remember I said earlier that this teaching falls in the midst of a story that Matthew is telling. A story that doesn't end with the end of this sermon, but goes on. with Much more teaching, but also with an event. Everything building towards a final event in this gospel, where Jesus, the king, the one they've been waiting for, the good teacher becomes more than a teacher, he becomes a sacrifice. He marches with great resolve and absolute intent to the cross, Where he dies a death that should be died by by, by all of us. Jesus goes to the cross to purify for himself. Paul tells us in, in Titus, a peculiar people. A people that stands out. A people that looks like this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' death is what gives this sermon as a gift to you. Not as a standard for you to meet. And with his resurrection, there's another promise. That if you look to him, he is alive right now to give you everything you need to have this sermon come to be real in your life. So, this sermon is a promise. That your life doesn't have to be dominated by conflict with people. You will be a peacemaker. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. That's you in Christ. You don't have to stay enslaved to your anger or your lust. Jesus says those who are in the kingdom, they don't don't give themselves over to these desires. That's you. It's possible for you to be free. It's guaranteed if you're with Jesus. You don't have to live with constant anxiety, always worrying about the future, never knowing if you're going to have what you need. What he describes in chapter 6 is, People who live with the freedom of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air who are clothed without ever thinking about it. That's you, friends, if you're with Jesus. This sermon is something you've got to strive for, but it's also something that's promised to you. It's not just about the kingdom. It's about the gospel. It is the gospel of the kingdom. How do you make use of it? I'm going to give you three steps and, and close with prayer here's how you make use of this sermon. You've got to realize that every text is an opportunity to repent. Every section we come to is going to be an opportunity for you to realize that you are not what you should be. An opportunity to accept that, to not tell lies about that, to embrace that that's true, and to repent of it, to put it away. It's a mirror that helps you to see who you are, and who Jesus wants you to be. Every text provides you that opportunity. Second, every text is an opportunity to pray. This is a promise. This is going to be true. But the way it becomes true is through prayer. Prayer is the ultimate expression of faith. I know I can't make this sermon and its portrait true in my life. I can't give myself the heart that I'm going to need to have that kind of righteousness show up. So I pray every time We talk about a portion of this sermon, pray it to God to make it real in your life. Jesus gives us a model for prayer in the Lord's Prayer, in the middle of chapter 6. And he says, he's, he's already said the kingdom is here. Then he tells you to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, it's coming, but it comes by prayer. Pray it here, in your life, as you look at the portrait of this sermon. And then finally, it's an opportunity to work. It's an opportunity to repent. An opportunity to pray because you know you're not going to be what you can be, or what you want to be, and what this sermon says you should be. It's an opportunity to pray, but it's, it is also an opportunity to work, to realize these are the things that please God, to realize this is what I want to be giving my life to, to bring other people in on a sort of band of brothers and sisters who are for one another working into this image. It is something that's given as a gift, but there's no place in this kingdom for cheap grace that leaves you where you were. This is a kingdom of transformed people, of desperate people, hopeless and powerful people, powerless people apart from Christ, but transformed people. It's an opportunity to work. We're going to do it together. God help us over the next few months. I want to start by praying that God will give us what we need for this journey. Father, thank you for speaking to us so clearly. Now we pray that you would help us to reflect the beauty of this picture you've drawn for us. We want to be citizens of this kingdom. And we want to represent it well so that you get glory. And we know we can't do that unless you're for us. So help us, Father, day in, day out, week to week, as we come together to sit under your word, help us to see what we need to, to be shaped by it, broken by it, put back together by it, transformed by it. For your name's sake we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow Thee, to despise, forsaken Thou, from hence my all shall be perish On from grace to glory, on by faith and wing by prayer. continue to worship this morning. We're going to take up an offering, and parents, I invite you to head out and get your children that are in child care, and join us back quickly for the benediction and for the last song together.
2: Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new